Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup podcast. This week, the team discusses a federal judge siding with Texas on a law mandating abortion as emergency care. Pro-choice groups suing to overturn statutes preventing Texans from traveling out of state for abortions. A new Samsung facility bringing big changes to the town of Taylor. A disbarred Dallas lawyer sentenced for laundering hundreds of thousands of dollars. A school district restoring the Bible and an Anne Frank novel to its shelves. BlackRock making the list of companies listed by the comptroller as fossil fuel divestors. A state representative being ordered to pay over a million dollars for legal malpractice. And God We Trust posters flooding Texas schools. President Biden proposing a new student loan debt relief program. And Governor Abbott alleging the EPA used faulty data to justify monitoring the Permian Basin. As always, if you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at the Texan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on a future podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with the team. We got Brad, we got Hayden, we got Hudson, we got Rob. The Hayden Hudson thing is like when y'all are back to back sitting right next to each other, I almost stumbled over my words. Not that I need much of an excuse to do so, but I almost did because y'all's names are so close. They are. <laughs> okay, great. Hayden, I do want to uh, to call you out right before we started recording this pod. You were like, man, it's too early for these kinds of jokes. We are making jokes. It is 1130. That is not what I said. <laughs> yes, I, that no, no, is no. what you said. I, I did not say. I believe my uh, exact statement was... After you asked uh, Daniel to tell you how to do something, and um, he interpreted that as, how do you pronounce the word this? Yeah, I said, how do you do this? And so he started to mansplain to McKinsey how to pronounce this. Yes. To which I said, it is too early for those smart, bad word remarks. <laughs> and Is that what you said? No, I didn't. I swore last week. I said, I'm not going to swear on the podcast this week. <laughs> but did you say that word earlier? And no. I missed it? Dang it. No, well, I did say it. But okay. I'm censoring it, so it's a family-friendly show. Yes, for sure. And uh, I said it's too early for the smart aleck remarks, and and that's what I said. And I meant that, you know, it, it's too early in the day. Oh. There are too many hours left in the day, and we have to spread out the smart aleck comments so mm. that we don't get an overdose too early in the workday. That's really what I meant. I don't know if this is your sincere uh, meaning behind what you said, but regardless, it was very good spin. If it was spin, if it was real, Hayden, that was well done. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, on that note, Hudson, we're going to get right into the news. A federal judge sided against the Health and Human Services Department. Give us some background on that lawsuit. Yeah. So after the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade um, and and essentially said that that there is no constitutional right to an abortion. The Health and Human Services Department released guidance um, aimed at ensuring that health professionals provide emergency abortions, even if the state that they that the doctor practices in has strict abortion laws. So HHS Secretary Xavier. Be- Becerra cites the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, as the legal foundation for the guidance. This law ensures that if patients come to the doctor and exhibit an emergency medical condition, the doctor must treat them or transfer them to another facility. They claim that under this law, emergency abortions qualify as emergency medical treatment. Interesting. Why did Texas sue them for this guidance? Well, Paxton and the attorney general's office argued that abortion is not a treatment listed in EMTALA to solve an emergency medical condition. They assert that under the law, when a pregnant pregnant woman is involved, the life of both the mother and the unborn child are prioritized. Additionally, they believe that the HHS overinterprets the idea of an emergency medical condition and that under the guidance, more abortions will be performed than necessary in Texas. They believe that this was the goal of the department and the Biden administration with this guidance. Okay. So under Texas law, are there instances where abortions are legal? Indeed. Um, Actually, every state with strict abortion laws allow for the procedure if the life of the mother is threatened, which is also an argument of the plaintiffs. Because this is already included as a legal provision in Texas law, they believe that the guidance only serves to expand access to the procedure. So where does this case stand now? So the federal judge uh, agreed with Texas on the merits and offered them a preliminary injunction that stops the guidance from taking effect. Um, It is also interesting to note that the so-called trigger law making abortion a felony in Texas also takes effect today. So they coincide. 
Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're recording Thursday. So yeah, right right now and as of today, that is taking effect. Very interesting. Hayden, we are going to come to you to stay on this topic of conversation. Um, tell us about some new litigation regarding abortion rights in Texas. There was a lawsuit filed the other day by a group of, they described themselves as pro-choice support networks. They are asking for a federal judge to block Texas state laws that prevent individuals from helping people seek abortions, specifically out of state. This lawsuit referenced various social media posts and statements by Texas lawmakers and others that are trying to deter people from providing assistance to those who are seeking abortions out of state. Today, Thursday, the Human Life Protection Act of 2021 took full effect. In other words, it is now a first-degree felony to, to commit an abortion on a pregnant woman unless it is necessary to save her life or to prevent serious bodily harm or irreparable bodily harm. Consequently, people are using these laws as leverage to try to prevent abortions from being performed. And this coalition of pro-choice groups clearly has a serious problem with that. The plaintiffs include Fund Texas Choice, the North Texas Equal Access Fund, the Lilith Fund for Reproductive Equity, Frontera Fund, the IFIA Center, West Fund, Jane's Due Process Clinic Access Support Network, and then a doctor was named in the suit as a plaintiff. She's an OBGYN practicing, I'm not sure which area, but she was listed in the lawsuit as one of the litigants. Got it. Did the com- did the complaint mention any familiar names? The class action lawsuit, I forgot to mention it is a class action, targets specifically Attorney General Ken Paxton and names Texas county attorneys and district attorneys, virtually all of them, because they would be responsible for enforcing some of these statutes. But ironically, it includes even liberal DAs like Jose Garza here in Travis County and probably Kim Og out in Harris County because they, despite disagreeing with these new laws, would be responsible, are responsible for enforcing them. But Briscoe Kane is mentioned a lot in this suit. His tweets and letters to uh, organizations that help people get abortions trying to discourage them from doing so are attached as exhibits. One of these letters ended with him just saying, conduct yourselves accordingly. Pretty foreboding. They claim in this suit that their people, so to speak, have been the subject of threatening remarks. And I don't doubt that. I'm sure that there have been some threats made against them as they speak out in favor of abortion as all these new laws take effect. But of course, Opponents of abortion are now empowered by state law in this new Supreme Court decision to protect unborn human life or to prevent access to uh, reproductive health care, however the uh, speaker wants to characterize it. And the Texas Freedom Caucus is named in the lawsuit because they sent a letter uh, apparently to a law firm outlining different legal consequences that could happen if they help their employees by reimbursing their travel costs to go out of state for an abortion. A a lot of different controversial points in this lawsuit, and it will be settled in the Western District of Texas here in the federal courts in Austin. Yeah. Well, Hayden, Hayden, thank you for covering that for us. Brad, we're going to come to you. The largest economic development deal in Texas history is bringing a whole heck of a lot of change to the city of Taylor. Mm -hmm. It's a good name. Um, What is happening there and how is the community reacting? You soon won't have it anymore. Uh, What'd you say? I said you soon won't have it anymore. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Samsung is building a $17 billion microchip plant in Taylor. That is in Williamson County. I think the population is about as under 20,000 people. So pretty small town uh, compared with especially Austin, which is close by uh, Samsung's building a $17 billion microchip plant. there, expected to begin operations in January, 2026. And the city is trying to quickly finalize its zoning plan in preparation for the growth that the plant will bring. City council is in the process of designating certain land, for expected development and identifying areas of restricted development. This drawing of lines has separated Taylor residents into winners and losers, as 
any kind of line drawing does. Um, one of the winners is Mayor Brant Rydell's mother, who sold a plot of undeveloped land that a large portion of which was in a restricted area uh, to a developer for double its market value. The developer was then prioritized for rezoning um, into the permitted development zone. And um, that caused quite a stir in the community. You can see more details in the article about that situation. But on the flip side, resident Bill Albert had an offer for over $10 million withdrawn for his property that is only 1,200 feet from the expected development area after the council's plan came out, leaving him in the restricted area. A lot of technical jargon there, um, but basically when they're trying to draw these zoning lines, uh, some people are winning out, some people are losing, and they are trying to get this done so hastily because Samsung is coming that uh, they're not taking a lot of time to prepare and it's being noticed by the community. Yeah, so let's talk about that. In your research, what did you find that Taylor residents have to say about Samsung coming to town just in general? Yeah, some are very supportive. Uh, those who, Mainly those who see an opportunity for more economic wealth and prosperity. They're ecstatic about it. Um, you throw in the government officials who will see a windfall of more property taxes coming in. Of course, they're going to be for it. I'm sure many local officials don't mind that at all. Yes, of course. Uh, Rydell himself called it the single most significant and consequential development for the local economy since the International and Great Northern Railroad laid tracks here in the 1870s. Um, Some see this, see the opportunity for uh, a lot of business expansion and uh, general prosperity for the community. Uh, but they believe the council's botching it. For example, Albert, who I mentioned early, uh, a couple mi- seconds ago, he said that a developer told me that there's 1,500 acres in the restricted growth zone and it's worth $2 billion. People in Taylor could really get tax cuts with this if they were smart and commercial, commercial businesses would come in and pay more in taxes. And then you have the third category that wish Samsung wouldn't come. And uh, John Kitzmiller posted on um, on a Facebook group and voiced this opinion. He said, well, over 16 years ago, we bought a little slice of heaven on CR 405, 40 acres. We have a little cattle, horses, etc. We had always said we would die and be buried here. Not now. Samsung is building their monstrosity only two miles from our ranch. Everyone keeps saying, well, now your land is worth a bunch. We would have rather stayed here without Samsung. And so uh, when big changes come to towns, when you see this rapid fluctuation of property values that's going to cause some people not to be able to afford to live there anymore. We see this happening in Austin a lot. Um, and because now, of property taxes specifically? Is that what you're saying? Uh, just the overall cost of living, which property taxes feed into. So um, this is only going to get more heated, I think. Um, as we sit here recording, the city council is going to meet later today on Thursday to discuss more amendments to the zoning plan uh, but i expect a lot of people to show up to that yeah absolutely thank you bradley hayden tell us about an attorney in dallas who just received a prison sentence on money laundering charges 52 year old Rayshon jackson is going to federal prison for five years after he pleaded guilty to a money laundering conspiracy charge in september of 2021 right out of an episode of Ozark, it sounds. <laughs> this undercover DEA agent gave him a black backpack full of cash that he was to launder. And this attorney had promised, according to the feds, that he could launder up to half of a million dollars every month in exchange for a 4% fee and a 1% cash bonus up front. Once he was given this backpack, he laundered the first 300000 uh, but he kept his fee for himself, and then he was given another $100,000 to launder. So in total, he laundered $380,000 and kept $20,000 as payment to himself. This undercover DEA agent, he thought, was part of, quote, a large-scale opioid distribution ring, and somebody in this ring vouched for the undercover agent, adding to his credibility and making it more likely that he would uh, be duped by this ruse. And... Feds got him, indicted him, and now he's off to 
prison for five years. They got Marty Bird. That's they what it sounds like to me. <laughs> did you watch the the latest season of Ozark? I did. I watched the last season and the ending was kind of disappointing, actually. Really? Yeah. I watched maybe the first couple of episodes of Ozark of the, of the latest season and I stopped because I can't watch it at night. It's too scary. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to go back and watch it with somebody or when it's not nighttime. Um, is this person still a lawyer? No. Uh, unlike Ozark, he did not get away with everything. <laughs> he had his law license revoked by the Texas Supreme Court two months after he pleaded guilty. So he is no longer an attorney. He is also forever prohibited from practicing law in the Lone Star State. There you go. Thank you, Hayden. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy hearing about Texas news without the spin on our podcast each week, consider subscribing to The Texan. We're not funded by big donors or corporate interests, so we rely on the subscriptions of everyday Texans to keep churning out news. When you subscribe to The Texan, you'll get access to stories, like all the ones we've been chatting about, as soon as they're published so that you can stay informed, up to speed, and ready to vote at the ballot box. A subscription is $9 monthly, but you can save by purchasing an annual subscription for $90, which comes out to just $7.50 per month. And right now we're running a promotion. New subscribers will get a free long sleeve t-shirt with this snazzy John Steinbeck quote. Texas is a state of mind. Texas is an obsession. Above all, Texas is a nation in every sense of the word. For more details, visit the texan.news forward slash subscribe or click the URL in the description of this podcast. Now back to more stories from the week. Okay, Hudson, we're coming back to you. Keller ISD made headlines last week for their new library book policies. Explain that situation to us. Yeah, so prior to the school year, <clears throat> Keller ISD sent an email to staff informing them they needed to remove a list of 41 books from their libraries and classrooms. Um, two interesting texts on the list were the Bible and an ab- adaptation of the Diary of Anne Frank. And um, almost immediately, the media got a hold of the email and the list and had a field day and made headlines claiming that Keller ISD had banned the Bible and Anne Frank. These stories caused an uproar and led to threats against Keller ISD school officials and uh, a lot of hullabaloo on Twitter. Yeah, so let's spoil the hullabaloo. Did they ban the books? What happened? So, no, they did not. The removal of the books was in line with a book review policy the school had recently adopted. Um, If the book is formally challenged by a parent, it must be temporarily removed for content review, not banned. If the book passes the content guidelines, it will be returned. And this last weekend, the Bible and Anne Frank were reviewed and deemed acceptable and are now back on shelves in Keller ISD libraries. Uh, This story is simply evidence of how easily fake news spreads and takes hold. Even after the books were returned to shelves, headlines continued to be published asserting that they were banned. Oh, wow. Well, it goes to show how important it is that, you know, we read a headline. I mean, I saw the headline. I was just as guilty as everybody else and immediately thought, gosh, (laughs) We need to write about this ASAP. This is crazy. And come to find out there's a lot more to the story. And so we're grateful for you for breaking that down for for me and for the rest of our readers so we can kind of understand what's actually going on. Why did Keller ISD adopt the new content review policy? So over the past year, parents and lawmakers in Texas have started to look into the content of library books available uh, to Texas students. Um, And they have been alarmed to find supposed obscene sexual content present in a lot of these books. So just last week, lawmaker Jared Patterson filed official challenges to 23 books in Frisco ISD libraries. And so one could assume that uh, Keller ISD's policy seems like a proactive measure to get in front of the controversy that they see occurring in, in Texas school districts. Got it. Well, thank you so much for covering that for us again. So important to be able to parse through the details of these stories and figure out what is actually happening, especially in these school districts. It's so hard to find out what the actual story is. So thank you, Hudson, for covering that for us. Bradley, um, after a year in the making, the Texas Comptroller released his initial list of financial companies divesting from fossil fuels. You've long been reporting on this, it seems. Who is on the list and what does it mean? So the headliner of this list, which has long been suspected, is BlackRock, the world's largest portfolio manager. Um, the other company, the other nine companies, there are 10 total on this list, are all foreign banks. Wow. Uh, the investigation by Comptroller Glenn Hager found them to be harboring uh, policies of divestment from fossil fuel companies and financially sanctioning those companies through refusing or discouraging financing or investments. Uh, this has been a, a long fight 
since uh, the legislature passed SB 13 last year. And the fight to pass that bill had been in the making for a while. Um, Comptroller Glenn Hager said about this list, uh, the research uncovered a systemic lack of transparency that should concern every American, regardless of political persuasion, especially the use of doublespeak by some financial institutions as they engage in anti-oil and gas rhetoric publicly, yet present a much different story behind closed doors. Uh, now, Texas State Pension Systems will begin the process of removing any investments from these companies or funds they manage. The um, The list will be running every, it may be updated with additions or subtractions as much as frequently as every every quarter. And so we may see some added, we may see some drop off depending on how they react to this. Got it. Why does BlackRock feature so prominently prominently among these? So first, it's the fact that they are the largest financial manager in the world, and they manage trillions dollar trillions of dollars worldwide, and that puts a big target on their back. But it also means they have a lot of influence over the movement of capital, which um, funds quite literally everything that goes on in our economy. You know, go funds anything from oil and gas development, whether uh, these companies are speculating for more more oil drilling wells uh, or pipelines or whether um, there's an influx of renewable generation. That's something we've seen in Texas. So all this kind of goes back to the money. And that's the biggest reason why BlackRock um, is the poster child for this. Second reason is that they've been very aggressive at promoting the push to a net zero economy. They have a big tab on their website that says uh, the push for net zero or something like that has net zero on it. Um, they're like on their about us page or something along those lines. Like um, it's it, I think it's just generally on their website. On their they website. have wow. Yeah, they're advertising it that prominently um, because uh, like you know the economy if people believe it is doing well then it will do better if people mm-hmm. believe it's doing poor then it will do poorer right because it d- determines how people spend their money and the same applies to um just investments period in, in single companies or single sectors if people believe that renewables is going to provide them a better inv- return on their investment more money will follow there same in the reverse um you can apply that to like fossil fuel um and so blackrock with the influence it does have has a lot of sway with uh, if they encourage their trillions of dollars of assets to move towards certain things, uh, the ones that they pick and choose are going to do better, um, at least in the short run financially. And the ones they spurn are going to do worse. And um, they say, so they have used this uh, global push for less carbon emissions um, to kind of funnel their their uh, priorities of investment towards renewables, especially renewable investment, um, things, other things like carbon capture, and away from the fossil fuel industry. Now, they say they objected to this list. They say they are not divesting from fossil fuels, and they have over $100 billion invested in Texas energy companies. But because of its, especially its public positions taken, especially statements by CEO Larry Fink, it has become the face of the ESG movement, and as the comptroller stated, he found an incongruence between what BlackRock and similar companies say to the regulators and what they say to the public and do behind closed doors. And that ultimately is why BlackRock is the poster child and on this list. What's next on the issue? So the legislature will undoubtedly take up new actions against the ESG movement. The, that's environmental, social, and governance. Um, it's essentially a, a push by progressives of many different stripes to pressure um, capital towards policies they like and away from policies they don't like. We see it happen on environmental stuff, on energy stuff quite a bit, but we're seeing it move more into like social policy, like abortion, um, how, com- trying to push companies to pay for travel, traveling for abortions, things like that. So Texas, uh, Republicans do not approve of that, and they are going to try and uh, tamp down on it. Um, State Rep. Steve Toth plans to file a bill prohibiting banks operating in Texas from f- refusing to issue financing to fossil fuel companies writ large. That's a similar bill to what was passed last year on gun manufacturers. Uh, I think it was Citibank did something. They, they refused to finance gun ma- manufacturers. 
and Texas passed a bill responding to that. Also, we've seen AG Ken Paxton. Uh, he's part of a coalition of states currently investigating BlackRock specifically, which I'm sure will extend to others over its ESG policies and statements. So this is far from over and it will continue, especially it will ramp up once the legislature gets back in session. Well, you've written about every little part of this whole story and it's interesting to watch it all kind of coalesce into one. Yeah, it's it's very complicated because it is like investments. You know, I don't understand all of it myself and I cover this, but it is very, very smart people moving the um, the pillars of, of financial investment um, while using you know policy as an excuse for it. And some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And people fall on both sides of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Bradley. <laughs> Hayden, we have a very spicy story that we're going to talk to you about here about a state lawmaker who is Sergio Munoz Jr. And what is the political leaning of his district? State Representative Sergio Munoz Jr. has represented a South Texas district since 2010. It covers portions of Hidalgo County, and according to the Texas Partisan Index, it is D67%, if I recall correctly. So it is heavily Democratic. He faced no opposition in the Democratic primary and, of course, is expected to win handily in the November general election. Interesting. So why are we talking about him? What is the outline of this kind of legal battle he's been facing since 2014? On Tuesday, a federal jury ordered Representative Munoz to pay $1.2 million in damages because of a legal malpractice charge for which he was found responsible. It was not a criminal charge. It was a civil case. And this occurred last week, pardon me, not this Tuesday, but last Tuesday, a federal jury ordered him to pay $1.2 million. But this case has been in the courts since 2014, and it all began when a lawyer's wife asked him for a divorce. And this attorney had cases on his docket in which a litigation financing firm called the Law Funder had a financial interest. The Law Funder hired Munoz to help protect its investment in this divorce proceeding so that they could protect their 1.2 million that they had invested in this uh, in these nearly two dozen lawsuits in the end however it came to light at some point in the litigation that representative munoz as he was representing this uh, litigation financing firm had formed a law firm with the state district judge on the case back in 2008 and he did not disclose this apparent conflict of interest. After this came to light, another judge forced the presiding judge off of the case. In other words, he didn't recuse himself voluntarily despite this conflict of interest. And the lawsuit went back to square one. They had to wipe the whiteboard completely clean and start all over. But by then, the law funder was virtually broke, and they could not afford to fight for this, the investments that they had put in these nearly two dozen lawsuits, that's when they sued Representative Munoz because they clearly believed that he had botched his representation of them and was responsible for them not only losing their investment, but all of the attorney's fees oh my gosh. that they had paid him over the years and the other attorneys on the case because the case was, was trashed after that. In the end, a... F- federal judge found him liable for legal malpractice and ordered him to pay $3 million in damages. And that was uh, Judge Michaela Alvarez. But the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals determined, in their opinion, that Judge Alvarez had not properly calculated the damages and that she should not have assessed him the $1.2 million investment that they had lost and the attorney's fees as well. The court believed that if he was liable for one, he couldn't be found liable for the other. So they sent it back to the trial court uh, with the modified parameters of the jury instructions, I believe is how that worked. And uh, the jury more or less decided that he was going to pay the investment that would have been recovered if the lawsuit that the law funder had been involved in uh, would had have been successful. So representative Munoz is closing this chapter of his life that has been ongoing since 2014 and is now on the hook for 
quite a sum of money. That is that is quite a sum of money. I wonder what this means for he doesn't have, I assume, any sort of opposition in November. And I I don't know that for a fact, but I think that's the case. And he is um, this is one of those text ledge scandals has kind of gone under the radar in a lot of ways and of course it's different it's not as flashy as other scandals we've seen in the ledge but still it's a huge sum of money it's a legal challenge that's been going on for eight years i mean there was even coverage before then about you know some stuff going on with with the representative so there were so few articles on it i know it's crazy do these in instances like this does the full sum tend to get paid back or how do you know i'm not sure i doubt he has I, Texas lawmakers are, I mean, I guess they're pretty well off, but not like one and a half million lying around well off. So I, I don't At know. At least what his, not most of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what his financial situation is. I kind of doubt he has a million two to write a check. Maybe they'll form an installment plan. I, I don't know how much of that money they will see, but I, reached out to his district office and they said to call his lawyer and I called his lawyer and they said they didn't want to say anything. So, <laughs> they so here are we are being pretty quiet about this and it hasn't received a lot of coverage. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for providing that coverage, Hayden, and we'll continue to watch what goes on there. But yeah, I guess this is kind of the end of the road. And there's, and I we're asking you so many questions here, but is, is there any appeals process that could happen at this point or is that all done and said and done as well? Because well, of, this could be appealed. Yeah. Yeah. But the last time it was appealed, they were successful. So I'm sure that they will appeal this again yeah. and see if they can get it thrown out again in hopes that time will be on their side. And maybe at some point, the the individual who filed this lawsuit, who was the co-owner of the law funder, I think he is 77 or 78 years old. So he's aging and uh, it, it could be possible that this case will just die of old age so to speak yeah well i'm sure that everyone involved is tired (laughs) legal (laughs) battles make you tired we'll see and to your point i think lawmakers make about seven thousand dollars a year on their state salary is what they make Mm -hmm. now you'd argue that in order to hold public office in that regard as a state lawmaker senator representative you would have to have some other significant source of income or a spouse who has a significant source of income where you can actually go down to the the legislature and conduct business at the state capitol without it being a detrimental financial decision for you or your family. So that oftentimes, you know, it's business owners, it's lawyers, it's people who have practices um, or just a means of making money <laughs> that's pretty sustainable who are also able to then hold public office or be able to balance kind of both jobs because it's a full-time job to be a state legislator, even if it's not a full-time legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, but you never know. It's interesting. There's a lot of lawyers in the ledge and this is just there one are. of them. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Hayden, for covering that for us. Hudson, back to you. Signs with the national motto are popping up around Texas public schools. Why is this? So uh, last year, uh, Texas Senator Brian Hughes authored and passed um, a bill that mandates that if a poster with the national motto, In God We Trust, is donated to a Texas public school, it must be placed in a prominent location around campus. So multiple organizations have begun to send in a bunch of these posters to school districts around Texas, and it seems to be having the effect that Hughes wanted. Um, He tweeted last week, the national motto in God we trust asserts our collective trust in a sovereign God. So in Carol ISD and Cy Fair ISD specifically, the posters are up in pretty much all of the schools and uh, other school districts in Texas have also received the posters. Wow. So what do critics of the bill have to say about this? Well, critics of the bill claim that that it's an infringement on religious liberty and intertwines church and state. Um, but Hughes and other supporters believe that it's simply an affirmation of the motto, uh, which has stood since 1956. So, and some other groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations believe that the law will foster discussion among students regarding their various interpretations of God and will be beneficial on the whole. Wow. So do other states have similar laws? Yes. uh, Texas is not the only state with legislation like this. Around a dozen dozen states have similar laws um, uh, mandating the display of the national motto in some regard uh, within society. Um, Interestingly, some groups have actually donated posters that have the national motto in Arabic instead of English to oppose the new law. 
Hughes assures that the text of the law prevents the display of these specific signs, but groups and other media outlets in the last couple of days have asserted otherwise, saying that the signs are acceptable under the law. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, well, and it's fascinating that a law already in place is all of a sudden making, you know, national news, local news, state level news here in Texas is something that's noteworthy because, you know, folks don't really realize something's in effect until they see the results of it. So absolutely. Thank you, Hudson, for that. Rob, we are coming to you to chat through um, a little bit of a federal story here. So President Biden proposed a new plan to relieve student debt up to $20,000 per person. What is in this proposed plan? Break it down for us. Sure thing. So the first part of this plan is that the student loan payment pause, which has been extended several times as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, will be extended through the end of 2022, and student loan payments will resume in 2023. Now, as for what the actual plan is to help relieve student loan debt, uh, federal debt holders will have $10,000 of their loans forgiven. Uh, If you've received a Pell Grant, which is for undergraduate students with financial need, you will have $20,000 forgiven. Um, Excuse me. And this only applies to students making under $125,000 a year. So if you're making more than that, you would not be receiving any student loan uh, debt forgiveness. Um, Biden has claimed at the uh, press release where he spoke about this that 90% of eligible beneficiaries of this forgiveness program make less than $75,000 for each family. So he wants to frame this very, very clearly as something that is not helping uh, the wealthy Americans, which is a claim that uh, conservative and Republican critics of this program have claimed. Um, The other things that this does is it will cap the monthly payment uh, for student loans at 5% of discretionary monthly income previously, or I should say at the moment, it's 10%. Uh, So now it'll be capped at 5%. And if you pay it off for 20 years, then your entire debt will be forgiven. Um, If your loan was less than $12,000 originally, though, you only need to pay it off for 10 years before it is forgiven. Uh, People making around $15 an hour will pay $0 a month for their monthly payment. Um, As Biden said, he wants to cap it at 5% of your monthly discretionary income. But if you make a low enough income, then that number that you have to pay might end up just being zero a month. And people making $15 an hour, this is as he estimated the amount of money that it would take to get $0 a month. You won't have to pay anything until you get a higher income. Uh, The plan will also cover unpaid monthly interest on income-driven repayment plans, so the balances will not grow as long as people are making monthly payments, even when that monthly payment is zero dollars because they're making uh, they have such little income. Some people have said that this is outside of the, the president's executive authority. How is Biden and the Department of Education justifying this program? So according to a Department of Education memo dated August 23rd, uh, the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students or HEROES Act, which was passed, I believe, in 2003, allows the Department of Education to relieve student loan debt obligations in the wake of a national disaster to ease the economic and financial tensions of that disaster. And they're claiming that the COVID-19 pandemic counts as one of these natural disasters. Previously, there was some confusion over whether or not Biden had the authority to do this, whether or not the executive branch had this authority. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said back in July 2021 that Biden does not have the authority to simply relieve student loan debt. Only the Congress has that authority. But after Biden made his announcement, Nancy Pelosi has basically expressed that she's on board for it. So she might not view her as being a constitutional problem with it anymore. Uh, In 2021, at a CNN town hall, Biden said personally he believes he has the authority to forgive something like $10,000 per borrower. Um, But in response to a question, somebody asked where if he could do $50,000 per borrower, he said he does not believe he has the authority to do that. How does the federal government intend to pay for this expense? So it's estimated to cost around $300 billion. Um, That's the, indeed, that's the money that won't be coming back through um, the student loan payments. But according to Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce the spending, uh, the federal spending deficit enough to pay for this program with increased taxes and by reducing the prescription drug costs for Medicare, which Biden claimed will bring in over a trillion dollars in the next 20 years by reducing those costs that Medicare pays for uh, prescription drugs, as well as student loan 
payments will be resuming in 2023, so that will bring in more money back to the Treasury. Biden claimed that independent economists said that basically this will not have a big effect on inflation. He said that because they are doing the Inflation Reduction Act and are going to be resuming student loan payments soon, um, that's essentially going to balance out the cost of this debt relief. Very interesting. Well, Rob, thanks for breaking that down for us and explaining what's in that bill. I always get confused with what's going on federally because I'm so zeroed in on Texas. So thank you for educating me. I appreciate it. Bradley, let's zoom back in on here on Texas. Governor Abbott has been incredibly combative with the White House over immigration, but he's increasingly setting his sights on energy, which is interesting ahead of a general election. What did Abbott do this week on that issue? So Governor Abbott sent a letter to the White House criticizing the EPA's impending rule to redesignate the permanent basin or portions of it under the clean air act that's hard to understand but the reason that's important is if that designation occurs that opens the door for more regulation more regulation creates more costs to comply with that regulation Um, producers fear this will shy away more investment in the region you know i talked earlier about uh, esg pulling investment away from fossil fuels well this um, they fear this would continue that trend um and the the permian basin itself is the most prolific oil and gas producing area in the entire country um the epa is justifying that redesignation by pointing to ozone readings that are above 70 parts per billion that's just the line that uh, line at which air quality is deemed unsafe for humans, according to the EPA and the way they regulate this thing. Uh, the problem is those readings are either not in Texas or not in the Permian Basin. Uh, the agency points to readings in El Paso, which is not in the Permian Basin, but is in Texas, obviously, and Carlsbad, New Mexico, um, which is in the Permian Basin, but not in Texas. Um Abbott says both those readings are are faulty data, at least to justify using for this uh, this new rule. Uh, a reading in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is on the corner of what would you call that part of Texas? The gosh, the armpit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Careful, uh, whatever there. that that like. Careful that ninety degree um, point at which Texas and New Mexico meet. Yeah, like the one, um, that's where yeah. that's where this this Hobbs um, reading is the county at which they're in. Uh, that reads only a sixty six parts per billion. Like so the under shoulder, the maybe mark. the shoulder. The shoulder. That's a better. That's yeah. better than the arm. Well, I think it also is more um, anatomically correct. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. that Texas the only is, thing I could, has any sort of human form. I shouldn't use that because uh, I use I call um, Toledo, Ohio, around where I'm from, the armpit of Ohio. Uh. So as you should not derogatory. Yes, yes, I exactly. should not have waded into that. Anyway, the shoulder, the shoulder. The sh- yes. Um, so that county is closer to most of the Texas counties in the Permian Basin. And that only reads 66 parts per billion at, as of the latest measurement. Um, and so Abbott is objecting to using these other two places that are further away to justify this rule and ignoring the reading in Mexico, Texas, oddly enough, doesn't have any um, permanent measure measuring devices of this, of, of ozone. And I don't know if that's going to change, but I've been told that spot checks and Abbott referenced this in his letter, but spot checks by TCEQ, the Texas commission on environmental quality show reflects more what you see in Hobbs, New Mexico, not what they're seeing in uh, El Paso and, Carlsbad. One of the reasons that Abbott suggests is that those two readings are influenced more by emissions from Mexico. Uh, obviously, something we have we can't do anything about, right? Um, and so Abbott is kind of turning the turning the the fire back at the federal government on this. Especially, um, he further said that he will challenge the efficacy of the rule. On procedural grounds, I don't know when that's going to come, but the rule is expected to come at the beginning of next month. Um, he alleges that they basically skipped a couple steps necessary in the rulemaking process, which requires so many days of notice and then public comments and then other various hoops to jump through. But he's alleging that they, the EPA uh, did not adhere to that. And so we'll see if anything comes in court and um, we'll see if the EPA actually levies this new rule. 
Yeah. Well, Bradley, thank you. Let's talk about some tweetery, gentlemen. Um, Hayden, I'm going to start with you. What did you find on Twitter this week? Well, I cheated and I didn't because I'm going to use my own tweet, but it is a tweet of someone <laughs> You're else's You're pulling a words. Brad. Yeah. You're pulling a Brad. But it's somebody else's words. It's not my That's words. That's good. So. That's good. I did want to mention, though, that three more counties passed, quote unquote, invasion declarations this week. Ellis County used particularly strong language and asked Governor Abbott to remove or prevent illegal immigrants from coming into the state which is notable because many of the invasion declarations do not say that. They just call on him to take all necessary steps and invoke the Texas Constitution and U.S. Constitution, but don't specifically call for state deportations. But Brian Harrison lauded the move by Ellis County commissioners, and his district, I think, is strictly Ellis County. District 10 is just Ellis County, if I recall correctly, the map. He said, quote, the, the United States is supposed to be a nation of laws and a nation of borders. President Biden wants neither. I am proud to have encouraged Ellis County to stand up for our shared constituents and all Texans and thankful for the leadership displayed by the Ellis County Commissioner's Court today in requesting Governor Abbott declare an invasion. While unprecedented, given that Texas is the first impacted and the most impacted by the Biden border crisis, we must do the job Biden refuses to do and secure the border ourselves using every tool and legal authority available, end quote. A little bit of a unique situation because not many state reps, in fact, I'm not sure if there is another state rep, I'll have to double check that, but Ellis County commissioners or the Ellis County judge and Brian Harrison represent the same exact group of people which is unique. But of course, critics would say that this is not legal because Biden is the only one with the authority to enforce immigration law. And that's not something Abbott can just take from him, even if he disagrees with how he's doing his job. But many people see it differently, including Ellis County commissioners and um, about a dozen other counties at this point. Very spicy. Thank you, Hayden. Rob, we're going to come to you. What did you see on Twitter this week that caught your eye? So a uh, couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article on a church um, in South Texas that performed an unauthorized performance of the Hamilton musical with their own original Christian lines written into the show. Uh, That church in McAllen has now apologized to the Hamilton team. They issued an apology on Tuesday saying, you know, we acknowledge that we did not have permission to do this. Uh, We are sorry to the Hamilton team. We should not have done this. And they're going to be, I believe, making some kind of payment to the Hamilton team as restitution for uh, this this affair. So it's certainly been an interesting thing. I remember this absolutely took over Twitter. Yeah. And I said, Mac, what do you think? Is this a good thing to write on? You were like, yes, absolutely. We have to write on this. And then I missed the podcast where we talked about it. But do you want to give us your honest thoughts now that you have the opportunity? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I don't really care so much about this story. I just really like Hamilton. Hamilton mm-hmm. is a pretty good work of art. It and, is. Mm-hmm, I absolutely. would agree. That's really my important. That's, I really just missed an opportunity to gush over Hamilton. Brad, it looks like you might have an opinion on that. Do you have an opinion no, on that? No, I have that? nothing to say. Really? Okay. Not a thing. I thought you might have something like negative Hamilton. to say about Hamilton. Don't you like Hamilton? Oh, I mean, yeah. He just doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm having flashbacks of a no, blowout argument don't, that don't, the two of you That's exactly why oh, I wasn't going to say it anything. It's tangential to this, and I think that that may be bubbling back up. Brian, if, was that our biggest fight? If we continue fight? this conversation. It definitely yeah. was. Yes. Our biggest Tell me fight. that y'all's biggest fight was over Hamilton. It was over the person of Alexander Hamilton. and mm, Not no, We're not going to get into anything more than that. If anybody wishes to go listen to it, I don't know where to direct you. <laughs> I don't remember which podcast it was on, but we really got it into it. It was after the podcast was over that the real fighting began. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it was like genuine. Like Brad and I really were mad at each other. Like not just playfully angry. We were <laughs> genuinely angry at each other. Well, that's the sad thing is nobody will ever get to see that fight because we weren't there in the room where it happened. Oh, that's good. Oh, my gosh. That's good. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hudson I liked that, too. I you just said that. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that's really fun. Um, Hudson, I'm going to come to you. Let's talk about what you found on Twitter this week. And I also like this little note you have in the docket that is extra. Um, yeah. So 
I I was just seeing the tweets this morning, and this is uh the five years after Harvey made landfall in in uh, in in Texas and in Houston, and I just thought it was notable because. I mean, it was such a big event and it, and it had such wide reaching effects on the city of Houston and Texas and captivated the nation. Um, and this was when I was beginning my college experience at Trinity University and many of my friends uh, were Houstonians and were severely affected by this. And essentially they're starting their freshman year while their houses were literally flooding and getting destroyed by by one of the worst natural disasters in recent memory um and i just thought that was that was notable um and also i've seen tweets that tom brady is back at training camp and i think everyone needs to know that and also (laughs) in a bigger note that football season is coming um so get ready there you go why was he not at training camp People don't know. Some people say it's it, he was filming The Masked Singer. Other people are saying <laughs> that is way out of left field. That's yeah. hilarious. But he he doesn't he he said no, and he said there was also no like medical emergency. But some people think that uh, there's some trouble on the home front between Tom Brady and Giselle. Ooh, ooh, some, something in short. Everyone is developing their conspiracy theories, as usually happens. Probably. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. I hope he wins another Super Bowl. I do too. Are you a huge, I guess Tom Brady, your favorite quarterback of all time? Yes. Okay. I love Tom Brady. Who's like second favorite quarterback? Uh, Nobody compares? You know, I like Tony Romo. Oh, interesting. I'm a big Tony Romo fan. Okay. Why Brady? How'd that happen? He's a winner. <laughs> Winners do what they want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's really funny. Okay. That's quite the reason. Well, I'm going to refrain from giving any Tom Brady takes because that has also been a source of contention between Brad oh, yes, and myself. Oh, I remember that one, too. <laughs> but you, there's, we're just oh, nice. a lot of sensitive points today. <laughs> uh, but we're going to leave it alone. Brad, what did you find on Twitter? So um, I saw a tweet by Alex Berenson, who is a former New York Times reporter who got um, kind of shunned by his former employer and much of the journalism industry over COVID stuff. Um, but he tweeted out a picture of this ad from the Austin American Statesman that says in quotes, pull that up. Jamie doesn't count as journalism. That's a reference to Joe Rogan, his very, very famous and uh, well-watched podcast. Listen to podcast. Um, I think it's the... We're almost on that level. Yeah. This podcast is almost... We're getting, on there. A we're, we're getting there. Just a couple more yeah. million, tens yes. of millions. Yeah. But that is something that Joe Rogan says quite a bit. He's talking to people on his show. He has his producer, Jamie, pull up articles so he can quote stuff and, and like things fact like that. Check fact or, check, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then next to that, uh, next to pull that up, Jamie doesn't count as journalism. The ad says, journalism by journalists not comedians. Now I have zero issue with them being competitive and having pointed advertising against who is someone who is one of their competitors. Um, in one way or another, he is a competitor of theirs. Yes, absolutely. And they, but I don't, I take issue with the message they're sending that what Joe Rogan does doesn't count as journalism. It absolutely does. He interviews many, many figures, um, whether it's politicians or uh, medical doctors, experts in certain fields, you know, in a wide array of people. And that didn't develop out of nowhere. There was a desire for that because people weren't getting that from their legacy outlet intake. And um the the statesman is totally missing the point they but we see this from many in the journalism industry gatekeep is overused but it fits here (laughs) they try and gatekeep what counts as journalism and what doesn't we see this with project veritas who is kind of sloppy on some things Mm -hmm. but what they do is absolutely journalism right um and there's this idea that unless you went to j school and work for a flagship organization what you do is not journalism when journalism is an action. Anybody can do it. Uh, you don't have to have the job title to do it. Um, 
And I just find this message by the statesman really um, sloppily done and not well thought through uh, because they are they're doing the same thing that has put them in this position to be outdone by Joe Rogan in the first place. And in, in that respect, it's a terrible ad. Um, it may, might be effective for the people that are already bought into their their line of thinking on this, but it's not going to do anything to move the needle. Bring in more people. It, re- it reminds me a little bit about that survey that we completed that was sent out by the Pew Research Center about the state of journalism, and one of the questions was about professional licensure and mm-hmm. should the state license people to be journalists. And ironically, there were other questions about fears of the government encroaching on the fourth estate. And I don't remember what the percentages were, but a good portion of journalists said that there should be professional licensure. It was, it was a not close to a majority, but it was still sizable portion of them. And to your point, that's exactly why so many people are tired of reporters and journalists and are so reticent uh, or excuse me, hesitant to accept what we write because it's almost a, a snobbish view that this is an elite profession that only a certain people can yeah. type of people can grasp, but you're exactly right. It's not, it's not a, an inherent trait or something that you're, you're, uh, you have to be licensed or given the rubber yeah. stamp to do. Anybody can, you know, write their perceptions and, and, uh, and exercise yeah. their first amendment, right? I, an example of that. So like um, the license to do for journalism is the first amendment it is not a J school degree or a title an example of this i mentioned the talked about the taylor piece earlier and one of the people that really brought this up uh the issue especially with mayor rydell and his family financially benefiting from this and getting priority um was an anonymous person anonymous resident on substack and they found this and they went they were the ones that initially went through and th- through the 400 page agenda of the city council and saw something that didn't look right and looked at it more and found a pretty substantial piece of information. And if, if you were to ask the people at the Statesman, they would say, no, that's not journalism. And it's like, it actually really is. Yeah. And, uh, you, it is. Yeah. Anyway, th- this ad just, I, I have no issue with them being combative with someone who is their competitor. This industry needs more of that. There's too much. Kumbaya. Yes. Um, especially at legacy outlets. But, you know, it just, it, and if it, they're kind of tacitly acknowledging Rogan as a journalist by attacking him as a competitor, you know? Exactly. So it's just. And it does slightly remind me of an ad that we ran like three years ago. I can't remember exactly what our ad was, but let's just say that it caused a ruckus. I know what you're talking about. It caused a ruckus. And um, like, we're certainly not criticizing the nature of the ad and the, um, like you said, the competitiveness of it or calling out your competitors. It's more the um, intellectual inconsistency of the claim. Yep. Absolutely. It certainly doesn't make you look very secure to have to call out someone who's not called you out as far as i'm aware i mean it it, it doesn't exactly speak I mean, to confidence sure but that would be ignoring the financial realities of the news industry so point. i i don't see that as an issue it's it's more of the the lack of understanding that of what constitutes journalism and that is inherently a problem in the news industry and why they're in the financial turmoil that they're in for sure very good okay well we spent a lot of time on that i will quickly talk about this tweet from hudson though um because as i was writing slayton tweet in the docket brian slayton called me <laughs> like as i wrote down state rep brian slayton's name <laughs> to be able to go and talk about this tweet he called me i don't know if i just summoned a call from from him or what but it's like beetlejuice it, seriously that's what that's what it felt like um but this is a 
press release from state rep Brian Slayton up from Northeast Texas, basically talking about um, Texas medical schools or alleging that Texas medical schools are teaching child gender modification to students, walks through a lot of what's going on here. Hudson did a great job um, putting this out on Twitter so folks can take a better look at it. So make sure to go follow Hudson on Twitter as well. It's just a shameless plug for his Twitter, but um, very interesting stuff. And we'll have a piece on that um, up today. So make sure to keep an eye on that. But very interesting, especially as the legislature um, the, or the legislative session becomes uh, a very stark reality as January is is haunting us to watch this continue to be a, something that's brought up in the legislative conversation. So we'll keep an eye on it. Gentlemen, before we wrap up here, I want to move on to a little bit of a fun topic. Isaiah Mitchell, we all miss him. Delightful reporter who used to work for us and has now gone off um, to get his PhD in literature. PH has been um, PH dork. That is exactly <laughs> what it stands for. Um, but he has been, you know, he has very little access to most uh, he basically doesn't have a smartphone, so it's not like you can just text us in a group text and it be seamless. Like it's complicated mm-hmm. to contact Isaiah unless you call him or email him. Um, and how he did this job for three years without a smartphone, I, I don't know. <laughs> and but did so well, I have no clue. Um, but he's also just used to it. Like he's yeah. just used to having a flip phone. I can't, I can't get over it. And watching him text, like clicking at one number, like three times to get to the letter that he wants. It's like a flashback. <laughs> it's literally a flashback. to like my first, my first little ruby red flip phone I had yep. when I was like 15. My um, first flip phone was also red, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a flip like this. It was where you slide it. Oh yeah. And it had, I thought I was, you were fancy. I was fancy because I had the longer keyboard, but I still had to press the button three times. So, <laughs> <laughs> so did you flip it? up or yeah you flip sideways. it up so that it's like a, a almost it's the sh- it's tinier but the shape of a game controller if you got it a game. okay the first phone i had was a mygo which had five pre-recorded numbers in it and you definitely couldn't use that in this job <laughs> but and I, I what oh i see what you're saying i just had and, to i had to process those oh, words <laughs> it's been a long time and back then i hated that I had that, but I'm increasingly seeing the wisdom of my parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great though about those flip phones. Cause they were like indestructible. I remember when my sister and I got our first flip phones, we were at dinner with, uh, my, was my family and some family friends, right? My dad's like, look at how great these kids phones are. And he grabs my sister's phone out of her hands and just like drops it in her drink and oh leaves it gosh. there and takes it out. Mm. Works perfectly fine. Cause it's waterproof can't do that with an iPhone nowadays. Oh, certainly not. Oh, my so gosh. So anyway, back to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah. So <laughs> I really want to, uh, yeah, he basically has been emailing us to keep in touch. And I received this really funny email from him that was like, because I believe in Bigfoot. It's this long, it's this whole thing. And he sent me a, a like a video. I don't know if it was Vine or TikTok or I don't know. Vine doesn't exist anymore. I'm 75 years old. I don't know what's happening. But um he sent me this video of a Bigfoot and thought it was hilarious. It was totally the most Isaiah thing ever. And then I emailed him and was like, how is school? But, and we were going back and forth. So I'll I'll read that email thread, but I want y'all to tell what you've been getting in your inbox from Isaiah. Uh, Well, we all got this very odd video this morning of these green dudes riding a bicycle. What would you call it? A five person bicycle? I have no idea. A five-sicle? It's like a we'll tandem bike. It was yeah. like yeah, a, a sleep tandem paralysis bike. dream. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the uh, tagline on the video was important. <laughs> Long story short, it was not important at all. <laughs> it was in the subject line of the email, too. Important. Yeah. So there's that story, I guess. What? That's pretty good. Um, but it was very real. He sent it to our press email. Yes. Which is just ridiculous. Oh, do I have a? Oh, no, I don't have a new email from him. I got excited. So I emailed Isaiah and I said, how has your first bit of school gone? And he says, which is the most, like, it's just all classically Isaiah. So I'm just, I'll just read. Well, our orientation was moved to Zoom, which is something I learned upon being the only one to show up to the originally scheduled building. An employee assured me I could conveniently join the orientation from my smartphone. (laughs) Also, my Jane Austen professor is bringing Victorian snacks to our first day of class. So I've got that going for me. (laughs) I said, I sent this one, I sent this to everyone in Slack and we all laughed, not at you, just with you. What constitutes a Victorian snack? Also, did you end up figuring out orientation? 
Isaiah, I did end up getting into the Zoom call thanks to the library computer lab, but I had to explain where I was once I got called on to introduce myself in the god-awful breakout room. (laughs) Also, did y'all get my note, (laughs) which I assume is the crazy email with the green guys on the bike. That's yes. what I assume to be the note. It's important. It's very, <laughs> it's important. And Hudson, I want it because you had a little bit of overlap, like two days of overlap, overlap yeah. with Isaiah. And you, I think you see why he looms so large. He's like a legend because he's just a, an interesting fellow. Yeah. What was your impression of him upon meeting him? He, he uh, left a lasting impression on me for the, the short amount of time that I, I was <laughs> in the office when he was here. Um, but I think some highlights... He took me to Sweetwater's, the coffee shop around here and in his car and, and had to like move like mountains of, of like cups and stuff <laughs> in the car that didn't have air conditioning and didn't have like electronic locks. Um, oh my gosh. He had maps of like the entire United States. <laughs> and that was when I realized that he didn't have a smartphone and that he had this like really like nasty like flip phone that was probably 12 years old. <laughs> And and I was just taken aback. I was I was like, "How have you been a journalist? Like, and operating as a person? How have you been a person and a journalist <laughs> at all?" And he, you know, he, he kind of like brushed it off. He didn't really give me a good answer. So he's kind of an enigma. He's got Hank Hill stickers from King of the Hill all over his computer. Um, and you know, if there was anyone that had a bunch of Hank Hill stickers, I think it would be him. Yeah, that's very uh, true. He was a he was an interesting fellow. Interesting fellow. And it sounds like we're talking about somebody far older than he. I mean, Isaiah's what, 23, 24? 24? Isaiah's a I young think guy. He's a little bit younger than than me. Than so you? yeah, he's probably 20, 22, 23. 22, 23. Okay. Yeah, because he yeah, he graduated college right as we hired him. So like we hired him right out of school. He's probably twenty three. He's probably twenty three. Anyways, delightful stuff. Well, any other things to add on that? I think we I think we pretty much covered his email I think we exchanges. Beat the dead horse, yeah, yeah, it's true. Okay. Well, folks, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more of our stories, subscribe to the Texan at thetexan.news. Follow us on social media for the latest in Texas politics and send any questions for our team to our mailbag by DMing us on Twitter or shooting an email to editor at thetexan.news. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners like you. So thank you again for your support. Tune in next week for another episode of our weekly roundup. God bless you and God bless Texas. Texas.